One of the primary tools that God uses to change us is His Word, the Bible. And uh, if you sort of look at the landscape of how people view the Bible and how the Bible changes us, uh, this might be an oversimplification, but there seems to be two kind of ways to view how the Bible changes us. Uh, the, the first is to view the Bible as a sort of moral to-do list. Right? Even if you were to talk to some people who are, are not necessarily religious in our country, in our culture, uh, but you ask them about the Bible, the chances are they'd be, be able to at least tell you of the existence of the Ten Commandments, for example. They may not be able to tell you what they are, but, uh, but they'll, they'll point out a list uh, that, that is in the Bible. And this kind of approach to viewing the Bible as a mere moral to-do list uh, has problems with it. Uh, well, f- you know, first of all, of course, yes, the, the Bible is and has a list of commands. As we just read uh, in Romans chapter 12, um, the Bible tells us how to live. But if we view the Bible as merely a moral to-do list, things that we have to do uh, and check off the list to make ourselves right with God, to be changed, a number of things can happen. First of all, uh, if we're honest, we'll despair pretty quickly. Because as we, we try to obey the list, we'll see that we fall miserably short of God's standards. Uh, the, the, the second thing is that if you just hold the, your Bible in your hands, if this is merely a list of to-dos, that's a really big list. That's, that's overwhelming. How, how many of us can actually look at this and say, this is something that I can do. This is something that I can check off on the moral to-do list. And so we'll either despair as we try to do that, or the other side of that is if we think we're pretty good at it, I'm a pretty righteous person as I try to obey these commands, then we'll, we'll become arrogant and prideful, much like the, the enemies of Jesus. So I would submit to you that there's a better way to view how the Bible changes us than as a mere moral to-do list. The second way, and I think the biblical way, is to view this as a fruit tree. See, the Bible tells a story of what God has done, God the Creator who's created us. And what we have done as sinners, we've rebelled against Him. And because of our rebellion, we're dead in our sin and we're in need of rescue. And God has promised and then sent His Son Jesus as the Redeemer to save sinners like us and to draw us back to Himself. And there's coming a day when He will return and make all things right. The Bible is a story. And when we embrace that story, when we believe the truth of the Gospel, it's like a seed that's planted in our hearts. And that seed cracks open and and those roots into who Jesus is and what He's done, begin to go down. As that happens, we grow much like a tree. And a tree grows as a a twig and then it develops into a a trunk and then branches come off of that trunk. And what comes off of those branches? What grows off of those branches? It's fruit. And when we consider the lists of commands in Scripture, it is much more biblical to view them as fruit on a tree than just a mere list of to-dos. So why 
why start uh, by talking about this as we're in Romans 12 this morning? Well, because we come to a section in Romans 12 that is full of a list of commands. In verses 9 through 21 alone, there are 30 commands given to us by the Apostle Paul. In verses 9 through 11, just those three verses that we're looking at this morning, there's eight commands alone. And the temptation could be for us to to view this as mere moral to-do list. Here are the things that I have to do without first understanding what has already been done for us in Christ, the roots that go down into the gospel. In fact, if you, if you were to zoom out for a moment and take a look at the book of Romans as a whole, I'd submit to you that you could view the book of Romans uh, through the scheme of a fruit tree, right? Uh, chapters 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul sort of lays down these roots firmly in the gospel. He tells us of our sin against God the Creator. He tells us of how we cannot be righteous on our own. We cannot fulfill the the to-do list. That's why Jesus was sent to accomplish it for us, to give us his free grace, to make us righteous, to justify us so that we have his righteousness by faith. That's the roots in the gospel. And then in chapter 12, the shift towards the practical begins to happen. We've Seen that over the last several weeks in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What does Paul say? Therefore, by the mercies of God, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And that, that's, that's like the trunk of the tree, right? That therefore, in Romans 12:1 attaches who we are and who we are to be and how we're to live to the roots of the gospel. Then, in verses 3 through 8, the Apostle Paul sort of gives us the branches, if you will. He's saying our attitude as those who are being transformed is to be that of humility and service as God imparts in us, to us, to his church, these spiritual gifts to serve the body. And it's not until verse 9 where we get the fruit that grows from those branches. That's where the list comes in. Here is what you are to do as one who is rooted in the gospel as one who is growing up in him, here is how you are to live. Okay? And just by way of reminder, let's go ahead and read. We're just looking at these three verses, 9 through 11, this morning. What does he say? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is the the fruit that we're starting to see on the tree that is growing, that's rooted in the gospel for God's people. And what is the first and foremost virtue, the first and foremost fruit, if you will, that the Apostle Paul mentions for the Christian life in this list? It's love. Let love be genuine. Now, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, if you've read the writings of the Apostle Paul or, or others, you'll, this is really no surprise to, to us. This is, love, is the primary virtue of the New Testament. Consider 1 Corinthians, for example. In chapter 12, the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time talking about the spiritual gifts, much like he does in 3-8 through 8 of Romans 12. 
And then at the end of that chapter, he calls the Corinthians to what he calls is a more excellent way. And then he launches into 1 Corinthians 13, the famous chapter about love. So in other words, Paul is saying, what is more excellent than all of your spiritual gifts? What is the most excellent thing? It is love. That's the more excellent way. Or take Galatians 5.22, where Paul tells us of the fruit of the Spirit, much like our list here. What is the first fruit that's listed in Galatians 5.22? It's love. This is not just the Apostle Paul's virtue, but Jesus emphasizes this as well. In his ministry, he was approached by an expert in the law, and he was asked, what is the most important law that's given? And Jesus says in Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then, listen to what he says in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, you can sum up all that God requires with love. Love God and love others. We see this not just in the Bible, but we also see this when we look around us, right? Of course, there's skewed understandings of love in a world that rejects God, but if you were to consider the, the music you listen to, the TV shows you, you watch, the movies that you watch, you will find this theme of love everywhere you turn. In fact, despite what kind of musical genre you're into, my guess is that if you were to consider your top five favorite songs and go read those lyrics, you will likely find themes of love. It's on all of our minds. Now, if you listen closely to, to the world, as, as the world talks about love, you'll also hear something tragic. You'll hear not just themes of love, but you'll, you'll hear that our attempts to love and be loved has, have left us empty and broken. Right? Most of those love songs are, are songs about heartbreak. Right? Now, when we look in the church as well, we see the importance of, of love, and we also see the challenge of love. We also see these attempts to love and be loved and how uh, uh, when we're dependent upon ourselves and we don't love properly, it can lead to, to brokenness. Because why? When we, when we consider what the church is, it is God bringing together through His Son people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, interests, hobbies, and bringing them all together in a family as one. And guess what? We're still sinners. So when we seek to love one another, we don't always love one another properly. Sometimes we put ourselves first and it leads to conflict and, and turmoil. And so it seems like as we look at the world and even as we look at the church that there is a question all of us are asking. And it's a question I believe Romans 12, 9 through 11 answers this morning. And that question is simple. How do we love? That's the title of the sermon this morning. And Romans 12, 9 through 11 answers that by giving these eight commands, but you can really put them all under the banner of love and I believe three headings that relate to love. As we consider these eight commands in these three verses, what are we seeing here? We're, we're seeing the nature of love. We're seeing the direction of love, 
and we're seeing the intensity of love. And all these three things together help us answer that question. How do we love? Well, the nature of our love, we're told to make sure our love is genuine in verse 9. Then we're told of the direction of our love. We're to make sure that we love one another in verse 10. And then third and finally, we're told of the intensity of our love. We're to make sure that our love is fervent, fervent in spirit, verse 11. And so first, we see here in verse 9, the nature of our love. Make sure your love is genuine. I'll read verse 9 again. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Now, as we talk about love, we, and really a definition of love is, is notir- notoriously difficult to define uh, love, but I think it's helpful to think of the, the four types of love uh, that uh, the, the uh, Greek language had in mind, that the New Testament had in mind, and we'll just mention them briefly, and two are really relevant to our passage this morning. The first is eros, which is a sort of romantic or erotic love. Maybe you hear the root word there. The second is storge love. And this is an affection for seemingly little everyday things, but also very important. You might say, I love my slippers, or I, I love uh, my cup of coffee, or I love pizza, right? And th- th- this is not necessarily an improper use of love. It's just a different kind of love. It's a storge love. And then third, there's phileo, familial love. Maybe you think of Philadelphia, the the city of brotherly love. I've never been there. I've heard it's actually not very loving, but at least that's the name. This familial, warm, brotherly, sisterly affection for one another. And then fourth and finally, agape. And that's this sacrificial, unconditional commitment to others. Agape love. And that those last two, phileo and agape, are what Paul uses here in Romans 12, 9 through 11. And specifically in verse 9, let love be genuine, is this agape love, sacrificial, unconditional commitment. And it's important because what the the Apostle Paul has been doing through Romans is he's been talking about the agape love of God for us as sinners. And then he, he turns, and we see in Romans 8, he mentions our agape love for God. How those who love God, all things work together for good. And here, there's yet seems to be yet another shift where that agape love is to be extended out to others. So God first loves us, and we love God, and we love others. And so Paul says here, this agape love is to be genuine. So what is, what is genuine love? Well, two things. First, genuine love is not hypocritical, right? That's what he's getting at here. There's a way, and we experience this, we can appear loving on the outside while not being truly loving in our hearts. The word hypocrisy is, is this, this, uh, the root word here. Genuine literally means not hypocritical. And that word hypocrisy means acting a theatrical part, right? Pretending to be someone you're not. But the church is not the theater, Paul tells us. Instead, we're a family. So our love for one another is to be genuine. Jesus' greatest opponents were were like this, right? They were not genuine in their love. They were 
hypocritical religious leaders. Jesus says, for example, to them in Matthew 15, verse 7 through 8, he minces no words. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is that not the the definition of hypocrisy? Honoring God with our lips, but our heart is far from him, or not just God, but others. Acting on, on the outside as if we have a genuine love for others, but really on the inside, we're disinterested. We're only thinking of ourselves. I'm sure you've experienced this, and, and probably, if we're honest, have been on both sides of this. I know I have, but for example, have you ever been in a conversation with someone where they're doing all of the right social things, they're talking to you, they might be asking a question here or there, nodding their head, but you can just tell that they're disinterested. They're not really there. Maybe they're looking over your shoulder or, or they're checking their watch or they're, they're pulling out their phone, right? They're disinterested. There is an outward appearance of genuine concern, genuine love, but really their mind, their heart is somewhere else. I've both been the recipient of that, but I've also been guilty of that myself. Or take, for example, flattery. See, genuine love is, is not this disinterested conversation outward with uh, concern for people while inwardly thinking of self, but it's also not flattery either. What is, what is flattery? Flattery is telling you something nice while not actually believing it. Right? That's hypocrisy. I don't know where it originated, but a, a wonder, wonderfully helpful, I think, definition of flattery is flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. Gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Both of those are dishonest. There's this outward appearance of genuine love and concern, but our hearts are not in it. And Paul says, this is not the kind of love we're called to. We're called to genuine love, not hypocritical false love. John Murray comments on this, and he says, if love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy the epitome of vice, What a contradiction to bring these together. And friends, aren't you glad that the love of Jesus isn't like this? It isn't contradictory. Jesus wasn't merely outwardly concerned with people, just with his lips, but his heart is for sinners. Can you imagine if he was talking to the woman at the well, for example, John chapter 4, about her her home life, her difficult and, and, and sin-ridden home life, and telling her of the way of, of salvation and giving her gospel hope with his mouth. But then he goes back to camp with the disciples that night and just complains. Can you believe that woman? How thick-headed is she? Can't she get it through her mind what it means to love God? No, Jesus would never do that. Or imagine Nicodemus coming to him as a teacher of the law by night because he's afraid of losing his reputation, but he has honest questions about Jesus. Jesus answers those questions, but can you imagine if he turned to Peter afterwards and said, can you believe this guy? He should know better. Why is he wasting my time? I could be sleeping. Jesus doesn't do that because his love for Nicodemus, his love for the woman at the well, his love for sinners like you and me is genuine. Not only is his outward action toward us loving. His inward heart towards us is loving. And we are called to move 
towards others in the same way. Not just moving towards others with an appearance of love, but with a heart of genuine love. As I was preparing this sermon in the office this week on Moody Street, my desk faces the window and I was working on this sermon and I could see out of the corner of my eye on Moody Street a, a man just flying down the street on his skateboard and he fell right, right out of our window. We're on the second floor. He fell so hard that I could hear it. And I was, I was convinced the way he fell sort of slid to his right side that he had broken an arm or a shoulder or something in his phone and his headphones and everything goes flying everywhere. And so I, I get up to look out the window and fortunately other people are around and I, I notice something interesting. Two people moved towards this man who was injured. One person uh, from one side of the street and another from the other side of the street and they both got to him at the same time. But then what happened was, was really shocking. One man bent down grabbed the man's wallet and his headphones and, and you know, put his hand on his shoulder to make sure he's okay. And it really seems to have this genuine concern for this man who just fell very hard. The other man gets close at the same time and he kneels down, but then he pulls out his camera and he starts taking pictures. Now, <laughs> it's, it's shocking, right, to think of that. I'm, I'm convinced that uh, everyone in our church in that situation, I would hope, if I know you, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you would do this. You'd be the other man. You'd be the, the man trying to, to genuinely see if this person's not okay. But isn't it an interesting picture of the two kinds of ways to move towards people? Not necessarily when there's a physical fall, but spiritually in relationship, right? It leads us to ask the question, which one am I as I move towards others? One man moved with a genuine concern, for the person. You could call it a genuine love. The other man appeared to move forward in a genuine concern, but there's really ultimately at the heart of it self-interest. He wanted to snap some interesting photographs. You see the difference? Friends, we're called to move towards others, towards one another with genuine love. So this genuine love is not hypocritical, but also Paul tells us genuine love hates evil and clings to good. The SV uses the word abhor here. It means to despise, to hate, to rid yourself of evil. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now this is the other side of the coin of genuine love. These things are inseparable. Whatever threatens what you love is going to be the object of your abhorrence or hatred. You're going to despise it. You could think of that in your relationships, your spouses, your, your loved ones, uh, your, your children, those you care about. If you value those things, if you love those things, if something threatens the well-being of those things, you will stand in opposition to that thing. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, what makes this difficult, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, is that if you were to walk down Moody Street today, for example, and ask 10 different people for for a definition of good and a definition of evil, you get 10 different answers. So what is good and evil? Well, that's for another sermon, but it's worth saying and reminding ourselves that all that is good is given to us in God's Word. If we want to know what is good, we must study and be shaped by God's Word, which reveals His good and holy 
character. And all that is evil is all that is opposed to God and His Word and His holy character. So in a day and age when definitions of good and evil are sort of up for grabs, people can think they can define good and evil however they want if they even believe in good and evil. What Paul is doing here is he is calling us to love Jesus, to love one another, and to hate our sin. This is a call to be holy. You could say, what does it mean practically to be holy? It means to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. But also, I think there's a subtle call here for us to repentance. Because let's be honest, if we were to think of our own lives right now, we can all think of ways in which we try to hold fast to what is good, but also kind of hold fast at least a little bit to evil, right? Paul's saying, no, that's not possible. If you want to genuinely love, you must abhor what is evil. And if you're going to abhor what is evil, you must also hold fast to what is good. I remember the first time I uh, accidentally drove down a a one-way street in the wrong direction. Um, it wasn't, actually wasn't driving. I was with my friend. We were in uh, high school and we were in downtown Atlanta and we're leaving a, a deliciously greasy restaurant called The Varsity. And we pulled out and, and are going the wrong way. And we didn't know it at first because no one was on the road. But what eventually happened? Other cars started coming at us directly. Uh, we're, we're facing oncoming traffic and we start understandably freaking out. And so my friend just stops. He just stops the car, which is a great start. But that's not the only thing you do when you're going down the one-way street, right? You also have to turn around. You have to, you have to head in the right direction. I think that's a wonderful picture of what repentance is. As we're heading towards evil, maybe we're, we're clinging to what is evil, God in His grace opens our minds to the, the reality that we're heading down the wrong direction. But we can't just stop. We can't just abhor evil. We must turn. That's what repentance is, a change of mind by God's grace. When the Spirit opens our mind and we realize that we are, we've, been abhor, we've been clinging to sin, now we abhor it, we must then turn and head the right direction, which is to hold fast to what is good. This leads us to ask the question, In what ways have I been minimizing sin in my own life? In what ways have I been essentially trying to go two directions down a one-way street? God will not share the allegiance of our hearts with anyone or anything else. We must abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. To, To love God and to love others genuinely, we must love God above all else which means hating our sin and clinging to goodness. Only then will the nature of our love be genuine. So the nature of our love, make sure your love is genuine. And then as we move along to verse 10, we see secondly, the direction of our love. Make sure you love one another. Verse 10 says, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So we see here uh, this horizontal love is what we can call it. Now, Romans 1 through 11 talks about the vertical love of God to us. And we, 
I keep mentioning that, and Pastor Clint keeps mentioning sort of these callbacks to earlier parts in the book of Romans because it's so essential for us. Those are the roots into the soil of the gospel. Nothing in this list is possible without the love of God for us in Christ. Now, C.S. Lewis talks about this, this, this vertical love, God to us, leading to a horizontal love of us loving others. Listen to what he says. He says this primary vertical relationship is foundational to everything the Bible says about relationships. When I've learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. You hear what Lewis is saying, right? We must love God and receive God's love first and foremost. That then overflows and leads us to loving others properly. And this is what Paul is talking about here. Love one another with brotherly affection. Here there's a shift in that word for love from agape to Philadelphia. That's the word used here. So how are we to to love one another first with brotherly affection? Now it's worth noting here that there is a popular phrase in this verse that we see all throughout the New Testament, and that is one another. One another. And that positions the context here and the application uh, right smack dab in the middle of the local church. Remember, Paul is writing not just in general to Christians everywhere, though by way of extension that's true, but he is writing to a specific local church in a specific time and place in Rome. And these commands, though certainly beneficial in all relationships, they're specific to the church with the primary application being within the local church. And this is another hint at the importance of commitment to the local church, church membership, the idea of sort of rogue Christians being out on their own without being committed to a local church is foreign to the New Testament. So Paul says, love one another, your church family. That's where it starts with brotherly affection. Now, Paul has already talked about uh, giving this image of the church as the body. If you remember, Pastor Clint talked about that in chapter 12, verse 5 a few weeks ago. But now we get this, this other image of the church as a family. So this is, this is so encouraging to us because when we come to Christ, we don't just get a heavenly father, though how incredible is that? We don't just get an older brother Jesus, though how amazing it is to receive Jesus as an older brother, but we also get brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles. We get a family in Christ. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but then he gives this family language. Encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. That's how we're supposed to view one another. Not just people we see at a church gathering, but those who are members of the local church are our spiritual family. Now the reality is uh, um, when families get together, there's both joy and there's challenges, right? We're sinners. 
<laughs> and the same is true within the church. And I'm an only child, um, so it overjoys me to think that I have so many brothers and sisters in Christ. But I also have six children, so I get firsthand uh, a glimpse of sibling rivalries and, and challenges and infighting. And do you know what I often find myself doing if I need to intervene um, in, in some conflict with my, my children is, of course, I'll address the specific situation as I'm, as I'm disciplining them and, and sort of counseling them. But what I all, almost always find myself appealing to at the end is, listen, at the end of the day, you are brothers, your brother and sister, your sisters. What am I doing? I'm appealing to a foundational relationship and saying you are united by something deeper than your preferences and your interests. You're a family. And what's so beautiful about the family of God is that we're united by something even deeper than a biological family. We're united by something deeper than preferences and affinities. In Christ, we're united as a family by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we're to love one another with a brotherly and sisterly affection. We're to live as if we're family because we are. We're also to, how do we love one another? We're also, he says, to love one another by showing honor. The ESV here says, outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. It's the one kind of competition in the church that's encouraged in the New Testament. And it's not really a competition. You're not keeping score of who does nicer, kinder things or serves people more. But it's getting at this idea that Paul mentions in, in Philippians 2.3, to count others more significant than yourselves. Now, what, how do we do this? It's, I think we could all say, yes, these are great things, but how do we do this practically? It can be very difficult. But I think one of the, the beauties of the New Testament is one of the clearest uh, applications it gives us is how to love one another because, and how to honor one another. Because that phrase, one another, if you were to look at the one another commands of the New Testament, there are 59 commandments to, toward one another in the New Testament alone. Now, we just mentioned before how, how uh, we can't turn these into moral to-do lists merely, right? They're fruits on the tree. But what a rich treasure trove of, of practical ways to honor one another. And we don't have time to go through all of them this morning, and it can be an overwhelming list. But Tim Keller helpfully summarizes these one another commands under three headings. So as you're, as you're thinking of that big number, 59 commands, they really fit under three headings. Affirm one another, share with one another, and serve one another. We can remember that, right? Affirm, share, and serve. So for example, affirm one another. The New Testament talks about affirming one another's strengths, abilities, and gifts. You can do that with encouraging words, right? You affirm one another's equal importance in Christ. The value of your brother or sister in Christ because they are made in the image of God and redeemed by Him. We also affirm one another through visible affection that's culturally uh, and relationally appropriate, whether that's a, a hug or a, a handshake or whatever it may be. Affirm one another. Second, we share with one another. New Testament talks about sharing one another's space, goods, and time. How encouraging it is to, to look at our church and see the people who've opened up their homes and shared meals for 
both gospel community, but also just informal relational serving and commitment, finances. Church, you have, you have done wonderfully at these things. You're a testimony to honoring one another. But also we share one another's needs and problems. Do you realize we actually honor our brothers and sisters in Christ when we tell them that we're in need, whether spiritually or physically? When we humble ourselves and give our brothers and sisters an opportunity to love and serve us? We also share one another's beliefs and thinking and spirituality, theology. How joyful it is to, to realize that we, are, we have the shared love of God, the shared vision and biblical truth of who Jesus is and what mission is and what the Bible is. We share these together. We honor one another by doing that. So we affirm, we share, and then third, we serve one another. New Testament talks about serving one another through accountability, right? holding each other accountable to live holy lives. We serve one another through forgiveness and reconciliation when we've been wronged. We serve one another's interests rather than our own. So how do we honor one another? How do we outdo one another by showing honor? We affirm, we share, and we serve. Just another very practical note on this. One of the ways we can honor one another is to consider the phrase that we're so familiar with. How are you doing? Right? Now, when we say that, when we walk into a, a room, when we say, hey, how are you doing? Let's be honest. We don't mean it. <laughs> it's a bit disingenuous. What we really mean is good morning. But what if when we said, how are you doing? We actually were concerned with how the other person was doing. What if we actually desired to hear about their struggles that week? Maybe a practical way to do this is change how you're doing to something slightly different. How's your walk with Jesus this week? Or how can I pray for you? Or maybe we, we ask, how are you doing? We just mean it. And we make sure we get a good answer. You see, and when we're doing this, it seems like such a small thing. But when we do this, we go deeper in relationship with somebody. We're giving them our time and we're giving them our ear and our interest and we are honoring them. We are saying you are worth it as a brother and sister in Christ and I care about you. And another thing that's so incredible is when this happens, it opens up the door for word ministry. Friends, this is not just pastor stuff. Those aren't just questions pastors ask. Those are questions Christians ask one another. So for example, you say, how is your walk with Christ this week? And that brother or sister responds and says, you know what? It hasn't, it hasn't been very good. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm really anxious uh, about some finances and I could really use prayer. And then, you, and then the response comes, and it's an opportunity to, to minister the word. You know what, brother, sister, I, I'm so sorry to hear that. I am, I am praying for you. In fact, I want to pray for you right now. And do you know what I'm going to pray? I'm going to pray Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication and all thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's what we're going to do. So I'd encourage you to let your request be made known to God, but also, brother, I'm going to pray for you. 
I'm going to take those requests to God on your behalf. And, and here's the great thing about Philippians 4, 6, and 7. The promise of that verse is that the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Now that might seem crazy to you, but that should be the everyday par for the course interaction among brothers and sisters in the family of God. Or maybe another example. You say, hey, how can I pray for you this week? Oh man, work is terrible. I just feel, it feels like a storm. It feels like everybody's out to get me. I'm just having a real difficult time. And you respond and you say, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. That reminds me of Psalm 46. God is a refuge and strength in the midst of a, a storm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray Psalm 46 for you. I'd encourage you to reflect on that verse as well. But you know what? More than prayer, is there, is there anything we can do for you this week? Would it, would it, would it alleviate some of the burden of, of that stress to, to provide some meals? Or maybe we could get some others involved. Do you, do you see? It's, it's very simple stuff. But friends, this is how we love one another with brotherly affection. This is how we serve and care for the body of Christ. The direction of our love must constantly be outward. Right? And then third and finally, the intensity of our love. So we've seen the nature of our love. Make sure it's genuine. The direction of our love. Make sure you love one another. And the intensity of our love. Make sure your love is fervent. Verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So we get a negative first. Do not be slothful in zeal. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, don't be lazy in this, friends. Don't be lazy in it. He understands the temptation. Instead, be fervent in spirit. Be zealous. Be passionate about these things. In short, what he's saying is, we're to love with intentionality and intensity. And friends, let's, let's be honest. It takes work to love this way because our hearts are naturally bent inward. And this is why I believe Paul says to be fervent, not just in spirit, but in the spirit, Holy Spirit. Meaning he's not just talking about our inner being, but he's talking about a fervency that comes from the Holy Spirit. And you can see that in a footnote if you have your own English translation that this could also be translated be fervent in the spirit I think that's what Paul is saying here he's saying we cannot love this way unless we're dependent upon him if this seems overwhelming if it seems like hard work to constantly be outward focused when our hearts are naturally bent inward it's true this cannot and will not come from within ourselves zeal without the Holy Spirit, is just tiresome religious activity. But Spirit-filled, fervent, zealous love will go the distance. The intensity our love of our love is to be fervent, and that fervency comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a favorite children's book in our house called The Big Red Tractor. It's written by Francis Chan, and he tells this parable of this town that has a, a tractor and a farmer. The only problem is that the tractor, though it starts up, it doesn't move on its own. It's been like this as long as they can remember. So every year at harvest time, 
uh, or when it's time to till the soil and plant the seeds before harvest, the town comes together and farmer Dave gets on the big red tractor and half the town pushes the tractor and half the town pulls it and they till the soil and plant just enough seed in time for harvest to get just enough food for their own village. But one day, Farmer Dave discovers as he's cleaning out his attic, uh, the owner's manual. And he realizes that he can fix the big red tractor and it can actually drive on its own. People don't have to push it. And so he spends all night one evening fixing the big red tractor and he plows the field all by himself and plants the seed all by himself. And the town wakes up the next morning and they are in shock. Because he, the tractor is able to do, once the engine is fixed, what the town people did in weeks, the tractor does in a night. And so then they're not only tilling their own soil, and they're, they're, they're tilling more land, and they're not just getting just enough for their own uh, community, but they're also going around and harvesting and planting elsewhere. And there's this overflow of abundance. Well, it's a parable Francis Chan's giving us a parable for the church. That's what the tractor is. And there's a way to push the tractor. There's a way to do church in our own strength. And we can, friends, let's be honest, maintain the status quo. We can have services and studies and and all these sort of things. And we can sort of get by in our own strength. But that's not the way we're called to love and live. God has given us His Holy Spirit that fills the church so that this zealous, intense, fervent love for one another and by way of extension, those around us doesn't come from within ourselves, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And when that happens, we can maintain a fervent love that is supernatural and attractive to a watching world. I love the, how the book ends. Chan puts a phrase from Acts 1.8 as the last page of the book. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. Church, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive fervency to love one another genuinely as He's called us to. And what's so beautiful about this is it creates this culture of the gospel that is supernatural and attractive to a watching world. This is why Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, this one thing, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So friends, let's make sure that the nature of our love is genuine. Let's make sure the direction of our love is toward one another and that the intensity of our love is fervent, fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And the best way to do this, church, is by looking to Jesus. It's by meditating on the gospel. Who loved more genuinely than Christ when he came to pursue sinners like us, left his throne above? Who loved more outwardly in direction than Christ when he lived the life we could not live and died the death we deserved to die and defeated sin and death by rising from the dead that we who believe the the recipients of his love may have eternal life. Friends, who loved more 
fervently and filled with the Spirit than Jesus who went all the way to the cross for sinners like us. So let us reflect on the genuine, outward, fervent love of Christ because the only reason we love is because He first loved us.